I think the second reason that the appellee seeks to characterize this as a women's rights case is that the cause of women's rights is now a fashionable one, and the appellee seeks to ride on its skirt tails. Welcome back to the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm your host, Lauren Moxley. Buckle up, TGT listeners. You heard the Assistant Solicitor General. It's time to ride on the skirt tails of the fashionable women's rights movement. So I know it's been a minute. I know you've been busy. I've been busy. But what matters is that I'm back and we have two more tapes to go to wrap up our project of listening to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's oral arguments in the Supreme Court in the 1970s. In the last episode, I broke down the tape of oral argument in a case that Ruth Bader Ginsburg didn't argue, Craig versus Boren, otherwise known as the case where women could buy 3.2% alcohol beer, but men couldn't. Instead, that case was argued by none other than Fred Gilbert, who Ginsburg affectionately called Ranger Fred. Ranger Fred successfully convinced the Supreme Court that it was unconstitutional to serve near beer to women at age 18 and men at 21 in the state of Oklahoma. Although Ginsburg didn't argue that case, she filed an amicus brief on behalf of the ACLU, was very involved in case strategy, and was sitting right next to Ranger Fred at counsel's table at oral argument. Over the course of the litigation, she convinced Ranger Fred that this case wasn't just about discriminating against young men. She argued that the discrimination in selling beer is simply another manifestation of traditional attitudes and prejudices about the expected behavior and roles of the sexes. Men as society's active members, and women as their quiescent companions, members of the other or second sex. Later that exact same day in October of 1976, Ruth Bader Ginsburg stepped up to the podium for a bit more sober oral argument, and that's the case that we'll be focusing on in this episode, Califano versus Goldfarb. As the Supreme Court reporter Lyle Denenson wrote after the argument, the Califano argument on the pension law was somber and at times tense. The court seemed much more at ease as it devoted a separate hour to the Oklahoma beer law. Denison was not kidding. The last argument was a downright hoot. There were jokes and everyone couldn't keep it together, even the serious Chief Justice Berger. This argument has a completely different tone. Uh, It's very serious, very real, and you'll even hear a question or two asking Ginsburg lingering questions about the beer case, perhaps because they didn't even want to bother asking Ranger Fred. So in this case, Ginsburg was representing a man named Leon Goldfarb. Leon was a 71-year-old former federal employee He was actually the manager of the Army Pictorial Center, which is a sort of museum for filmmakers and photographers of war. And he lived in Queens with his wife, Hannah, who had worked for 25 years as a secretary in public school system, and she had paid full social security taxes. Hannah passed away, and because Leon was a widower rather than a widow, for Leon to obtain sole survivor's social security benefits, he would have had to have proven that his wife provided over three quarters of the family income. Now, you're a TGT listener, so I'll give you one guess what would have happened had the gender roles been reversed. The female sole surviving widow would have obtained the benefits. In some ways, this case was a total slam dunk for Ginsburg. It is the natural outgrowth of Weinberger versus Weissenfeld, as it's essentially the same case without the baby. 
Remember from the episode back in April, we had our favorite plaintiff, Stephen Weissenfeld, who successfully challenged a law providing sole surviving mother's benefits were unconstitutional. It was going to be super difficult for the justices to distinguish this case from Weinberger versus Weissenfeld. But in a few other ways, this was an uphill battle. Extending the surviving spouse social security benefit to men would be extremely expensive. The government estimated that it would cost about $440 million per year. The political tide in the country was also shifting. Phyllis Schlafly was winning. The tide was turning against the ERA, and the 1976 Republican Convention had a newfound focus on family values that was pitted directly against this second-wave feminist movement of the 1960s and 70s. And then there was a third factor. Justice Stevens had recently replaced Justice Williams O. Douglas, who had been a pretty steady vote for Justice Ginsburg's side, with the exception of Kahn, remember the mother issue back from the episode in February. And there's some uncertainty as to how Justice Stevens is going to vote in women's rights cases. And any concerns about Justice Stevens' vote were realized in this case. Justice Stevens and Justice Stewart pressed Ginsburg in several lines of questioning that become the major theme of this oral argument. Anti-male bias. So we know by now that Ginsburg is representing men in a lot of these cases. And this is a critical part of her strategy, which is no doubt influenced by the fact that the judiciary and the Supreme Court is heavily male. And well, the Supreme Court's entirely male. But more fundamentally, I think this strategy is an effective way to show how American law pigeonholed both men and women into certain roles. By representing men, she shows how they are immediately injured. In this case, for example, Leon Goldfarb is denied a benefit that he would have obtained if he was a woman. And in the case earlier that morning, 20-year-old men in Oklahoma aren't able to buy beer. But she also goes a layer deeper. She shows how that same law that has an immediate negative effect for men necessarily reflects stereotypes about women, about their place. But Justices Stevens and Stewart want to know, is there a law that can purely discriminate against man without also reflecting negative stereotypes about women? Okay, so I think that's enough of an introduction to this case for me. But because we're almost done with this project, this is Ginsburg's penultimate oral argument in the Supreme Court as an advocate. I wanted to spend the last part of this episode reflecting on the significance of the middle tier of review, which we know from the last episode, the beer case, was the ultimate result of Ginsburg's effort to locate sex equality in the U.S. Constitution. I'm also going to talk about this intertwined issue of the Equal Rights Amendment and how this middle tier of review, this partial victory of intermediate scrutiny, and the failure to pass the Equal Rights Amendment traces back to where we are today. But before we can think about today, we still have more things to learn about the 1970s, specifically October 5th, 1976, in Califano v. Goldfarb. Very well. Mrs. Bain and Mrs. Gensberg. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Leon Goldfarb's case concerns a differential in the quality of social insurance accorded men and women. Pursuant to the Federal Insurance Contributions Act, payments into Social Security's old age and survivor's insurance program are exacted from gainfully employed men and women without regard to the sex of the contributor. Whether the wage earner is a man or a woman, equal earnings require equal contributions. 
In contrast to the gender-neutral contribution system, the program draws a sharp line between the sexes on the payout side. Benefits to a spouse available under a male wage earner's account are not equally available under a female wage earner's account. The court below ruled that this separate and unequal payout system discriminates invidiously against the wage-earning woman and her spouse. That decision and all other, five other, federal court judgments on the same point solidly anchor to this court's 1973 judgment in Frontier O.B. Richardson and 1975 decision in Weinberger v. Weisenfeld. So right off the bat, Ginsburg is spelling out that double-edged sword that's going to be so important as we get into those questions of anti-male bias later in this argument. She's saying, yes, Leon Goldfarb is the plaintiff here. He is immediately injured by this sex-discriminatory Social Security benefit scheme. But let's not ignore his wife, Hannah. Hannah paid full Social Security taxes out of her paycheck every month. But she's denied the same security for her husband that a man would have been for his wife, who paid the same taxes. Okay, so let's learn a little bit more about how this particular case reached the Supreme Court. So Ginsburg had actually been working on a different Weissenfeld without the baby case, and that was Edgar Coffin's case. Edgar Coffin was in a similar situation to Leon Goldfarb. He was a retired police officer in New Jersey, and his wife Edna was a math teacher, whose earnings were about the same as his. Edna, like Hannah Goldfarb, had paid full Social Security taxes, but when she predeceased her husband, he wasn't able to obtain the sole surviving Social Security benefits that she would have been able to obtain had the situation been reversed. The reason why that coffins were slightly preferable as plaintiffs over the Goldfarbs was because Leon Goldfarb, unlike Edgar Coffin, already had a different pension. So Ginsburg was worried, especially with the price tag of this case, that the justices would see him as a double dipper and be less inclined to grant him the benefits. But this is the wild west of litigation, which can be hard to predict. And even though Goldfarb's case was argued a year after Coffin's, he ended up jumping in queue because his decision came out so much more quickly. There's a passage in the decision from the Eastern District of New York in Goldfarb's case that I think captures Ginsburg's point about the double-edged sword of discrimination quite well. Whatever may have been the ratio of contribution to family expenses of the Goldfarbs while they worked, Mrs. Goldfarb was entitled to the dignity of knowing that her social security tax could contribute to their joint welfare when the couple or one of them retired and to her husband's welfare should she predecease him. She paid taxes at the same rate as men, and there is not the slightest scintilla of support for the proposition that working women are less concerned about their spouse's welfare in old age than men. And in a telling concurrence in the district court, one judge wrote that he concurred reluctantly because of recent Supreme Court decisions, but that he thought that this was an exercise of judicial authority that should have been legislative. I think that concurrence is an apt preview of what we're going to hear next in this tape. Ginsburg will now transition to her legal argument, which is that this case is squarely decided by two cases she's argued. Two cases you as TGT listeners know so well, Frontiero and Weissenfeld. So even if the justices are inclined to rule against Leon Goldfarb, Ginsburg has moved them along in an incremental way 
to a point where they're boxed in by legal doctrine. It's so hard to distinguish this case from Frontiero, where the court struck down a military benefit scheme that automatically entitled the wives of military service members special benefits, but made the husbands of female military service members prove that they were dependent on their wives for over one half of their support. And it's even harder to distinguish this case from Weissenfeld, where the court struck down a social security scheme that automatically granted sole surviving mothers special social security benefits, but did not make those benefits available to sole surviving fathers. Ginsburg is basically saying, justices, your hands are tied here by a house that I built brick by brick. Thus the issue on which this appeal turns is cleanly posed. Dufrontiero and Weisenfeld impart a principled basis for deciding gender discrimination cases formed from the same mold? Or are the Frontiero and Weisenfeld precedents shallow and evanescent, as the Secretary would have it today? In Weisenfeld, the court declared unconstitutional the Social Security Act's provision of a mother's benefit, but no father's benefit. When Weisenfeld was presented to this court, the Solicitor General described the gender differential there at issue as very closely analogous to the one at bar. And in Frontiero, the court held unconstitutional a military fringe benefit arrangement displaying a gender line virtually identical to the one at bar. In defending the Frontiero classification, the Solicitor General noted similar distinctions are found in other federal laws he supplied as his sole example 42 U.S.C. Section 402, the very Social Security provision now before the court. Like Stephen Weisenfeld and Sharon and Joseph Frontiero, Leon Goldfarb challenged an employment-related benefit scheme that attributes to the male wage earner status, dignity, and importance not attributed to the female wage earner. As the Secretary recites, the old age and survivor's insurance at issue took shape in two stages. First, in 1939, Congress ordered that the male worker's Social Security account should attract benefits for his spouse without regard to husband's and wife's respective contributions to family income. Ginsburg just put it to the court straight. If your decisions in Frontiero and Weisenfeld mean anything, this sex discriminatory law must be struck down. And not to jump ahead too much, but I've been spending entirely too much time at the archive section of the Library of Congress. And we can tell from the original notes from the Judicial Conference following this oral argument that not one, not two, not three, but four justices wanted to vote against Ginsburg, but felt bound by prior precedent. The new Justice Stevens even wrote, the court had gone too far, but he was not content with the present state of the law, but felt bound by cases already decided. That's what makes Ginsburg's strategy in this overall effort to locate sex equality in the Constitution incremental and largely successful. She built up to this moment through Frontiero, through Edwards, through Weisenfeld, through Craig, and now here we are today at a point where the justices feel bound by prior precedent. Okay, so the oral argument is about to get pretty interesting. Justice Stewart and then Justice Stevens are going to go at Ginsburg on this question of anti-male bias. 
And because the exchanges are a bit long, I'm going to break them up, leading first with Justice Stewart. Mrs. Hader, may I interrupt for a moment? You heard what, what, your, what our friend Mr. Jones had to say preliminarily uh, about whether or not this is uh, anti-female discrimination or anti-male discrimination. And I suppose you would agree that it can be cast either way. You've cast it as anti-female discrimination, anti-female wage earner discrimination. It could be equally cast as anti-male beneficiary discrimination. But in any event, do you think there's any constitutional difference? Let's say the statute where wherever it says widow, it said widower and vice versa. Let's just turn the coin around and say the statute was the other way. Would it make any constitutional difference? Would you have just as strong or, and no more strong a constitutional argument? The line drawn here, like virtually every gender discrimination is a two-edged sword. It works both ways. Because uh, some of the opinions of this court and other courts have, uh, when they've seen anti-female discrimination, have relied uh, for their constitutional decision upon the history of anti-female discrimination. There's been no such history of anti-male discrimination, I guess, as a matter of historic fact. Because most anti-female discrimination was dressed up as discrimination favoring the woman. I know woman. that. I know that, but the courts, through help of advocates such of you, as, as you have been able to see through that, haven't they? <laughs> the point is that the discriminatory line almost inevitably hurts women. Well, my question others. is, if this were purely an anti-male discrimination, and let's assume it were, would you have as strong a constitutional argument in your view? My argument would be the same, because I don't know of any purely anti-male discrimination. In the end, the women are the, one who, the ones who end up Suffering. hurting. Yes. Uh, I should point out that in 1950, uh, when Congress authorized these benefits under a female worker's account, uh, the dependency test that was attached was a very stringent dependency test. It was not a question of whether the woman... Okay, so two key takeaways from that exchange. One, that is a lesson in not taking the bait. On the one hand, as an oral advocate, you don't want to fight the hypothetical too much if a judge or justice asks you a hypothetical question. But at the same time, you don't want to accept a paradigm that isn't true and that fundamentally undercuts your case. And there, Ginsburg was relentless in making her point. She's yet to find a law that, that purely discriminates against men without any discriminatory effect against women. Second takeaway, the part where Justice Stewart said, I know, I know, advocates such as you have enabled us to see through that, referring to this notion of benevolent sexism that's so pervasive in American law, and the laughter in the courtroom, the sense that everyone's in on this together. It's just gratifying to be at this point in Ginsburg's career as an advocate before the Supreme Court, where the justices and the people in the courtroom acknowledge what she's done. Among other things, taught the court about how romantic paternalism pervades American law and about how laws that purport to benefit women actually serve to pigeonhole them and to hold both sexes back from true equality. Okay, so Justice Stevens is now going to take the mic and pile on this question about whether a law can purely discriminate against men. Can I interrupt just to be sure I understand your position in response to Justice Stewart? Is it your view that there is no discrimination against males? 
I think there is discrimination against males. Uh, if there is such discrimination, yes. is it to be tested by the same or by a different standard from discrimination against females? My response to that, Mr. Justice Stevens, is that almost every discrimination that operates against males operates against females as well. Is that a yes or a no answer? I just don't understand you. And I, are you trying to avoid the question? Or? No, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I'm trying to clarify the position that I don't know of any line that doesn't, that doesn't work as a two-edged sword. Doesn't well, we had a case this sections. morning, just to be concrete, involving a law that would not permit males to make certain purchases that females could make and was attacked as a discrimination against males. Yes. My question is whether we should examine that law under the same or a different standard than if it were a discrimination against the My other My answer sex. to that question is no, in part because such a law has an insidious impact against females. It stamps them docile, compliant, but, safe to be trusted. But your answer always depends on their finding some discrimination against females. You seem to put that in every answer to this question. My answer was that I have not yet come across a statute that doesn't have that effect. But if there were end. one, you would say it should be t tested under a different if, standard, if, I take it. If there were such a statute, I would reserve judgment on what the standard should be. In any case, I have not come across such a statute and my... Uh, so your case depends, then, on our analyzing this case as a discrimination against females? No. My case depends on your recognition that using gender as a classification, resorting to that classification, is highly questionable and should be closely reviewed. As always, in fact, a discrimination against females. Yes, as far as <coughs> I have That's seen. That's your position. <coughs> that, that is the ultimate effect of such line drawing. Mrs. Ginsburg. ...opinion and Chevin against Kahn into this uh, colloquy you're having with my brothers. In Kahn against Chevin, uh, the court analyzed that classification as helpful to some women, harmful to none. If you accept that analysis, well, then you might rationalize that as a, a compensatory uh, classification that could survive constitutional review. In addition, it was a very small matter involved in Kahn. Well, it, it, did, a, it did survive constitutional yes, scrutiny yes. here. But it, wait, what we have in this case is a classification that is harmful. Justice Stevens clearly wanted Ginsburg to say what standards should apply to a law that purely discriminates against men, that is, what tier of constitutional scrutiny. And he suggested that he thought that the beer law case, Craig v. Boren, was one such law. But Ginsburg doubled down. She had not seen a law that purely discriminates against men, without reflecting and perpetuating some sort of notion about what society expected of women. And so she'd reserve judgment on saying what standards should apply if such a law could ever exist. Justice Stevens' questioning and oral argument and his focus on this question about anti-male bias was, as Ginsburg put in a letter, picked up in almost every press report on this oral argument. I'm sure there was enhanced focus on him as the public was trying to figure out their new justice, kind of like what we just went through with Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. So in the post-mortem of this argument, when everyone's talking about this exchange with Justice Stevens, Ginsburg explained that she was thinking about affirmative action for racial minorities during these exchanges about anti-male bias. Ginsburg knew that the justices would have to square her attack on laws purporting to benefit women 
with a conservative attack on laws purporting to benefit racial minorities. And we've talked about the tortured doctrinal relationships between these two sets of arguments, which have radically different bases in American society and yet are bound together by legal doctrine, by the fact that this effort to situate sex equality in the Constitution has to happen through the post-Civil War 14th Amendment. And I'm going to discuss this issue a bit more at the end of this episode. In a letter to a friend following this oral argument, Ginsburg wrote that with preferential program issues in the wings, like the California Bakke case, which is about affirmative action, I tried to avoid trenching on that territory. She also said that she was surprised at the good justice, referring to Justice Stevens, and that she regretted not coming back at him with his own Senate testimony, where he said that his judgment on affirmative action issues would be a function of the kind of factual situation disclosed by the parties in the case. Okay, so I'm going to skip the tape to the end of an exchange about the impact of this case called Matthews versus Lucas, which is a decision from the prior term. So Matthews was about children's benefits, and it had a classification for children whose parents were not married. And in the course of holding that quote-unquote illegitimacy was not a protective class, Justice Blackman distinguished illegitimacy from racial classifications and sex classifications. And he acknowledged the severity and pervasiveness of historic legal and political discrimination against women. So in the next clip, you'll hear Ginsburg thread a needle from Justice Blackman's dicta and Matthews versus Lucas back to this case. Ginsburg will explain that in Matthews versus Lucas, the court pointed out problems with the same kind of line drawing exercise that we see in this case, with the law that she'll refer to as section 402. Matthews v. Lucas did not involve a sex classification. No, a classification of illegitimacy and in the process of so doing distinguished uh, sex classifications and race classifications, both of which present, as Mr. Justice Blackman said, an obvious badge. Yes, women's history has been a history of purposeful unequal treatment. Women have been subjected to unique disabilities based on stereotype characteristics not truly indicative of their abilities. And further, in Matthews v. Lucas, the court pointed to the generalization, harmful to women, underlying this one-way, three-to-one support test. Uh, the, the woman spouse does not qualify unless the woman supplied all of her own support plus half of his. It's a 75% uh, support test at issue here. It's not enough that she earned 51% of the family's income. But the court pointed out in Matthews v. Lucas that such a gender-specific classification reflects the familiar, overbroad, stereotypical assumption that earnings of men are vital to the family and earnings of women are not. But the secretary has told you that this discrimination in the old age and survivor's insurance is discrimination helpful to women, discrimination rationally responsive to the low economic status of many wives and widows? Yes, Congress did attend to the man's wife in 1939 in the same paternalistic spirit it attended to his children. But the vaunted congressional attention to wives and widows is expressed in a scheme that heaps further disadvantage on the gainfully employed woman, a law that benefits a woman as wife or widow but does not denigrate woman as wage earner, might be rationalized as benign. 
and the gender criterion ranked as an appropriate means to a legitimate end. But the Section 402 differential cannot be rationalized as favorable to some women, harmful to none. The wage-earning woman is disfavored, her work is devalued, when the earnings dollar she contributes to Social Security is worth less in protection for her family than the earnings dollar of an identically situated male worker. In sum, the line Congress drew in Section 402 does not ameliorate gender discrimination. It does not alter conditions that relegate women to an inferior place in political and economic endeavor. Rather, the, the gender line drawn in the old age and survivor's insurance program reflects and reinforces constraining stereotypes. The differential favors and rewards men's employment more than women's. It casts the law's weight on the side of arrangements in which man's work comes first, woman second, together with other incentives, it helps steer the married couple in one direction and discourages independent choice by the pair. I think it's good practice when you're arguing before any court, including the Supreme Court, that you answer the judge or justice's questions, but you also have a set of points that you're trying to get across. And, and I thought that was a good example of Ginsburg both answering a question on Matthews versus Lucas and deftly pivoting back to her key arguments. This discriminatory social security benefit scheme confines choices by valuing a man's work more than a woman's, by assuming that a widow needs to be cared for, but not a widower. In the next exchange, Ginsburg will be asked by one of the justices something that might be a bit of a sore subject, her only loss before the Supreme Court, Kahn versus Shevin. You probably remember that in Kahn, the Supreme Court upheld a property tax exemption in Florida for female widows, but not male widowers. And the justice, and his identity is unclear from the transcript, but I think it's Chief Justice Berger, will ask Ginsburg whether she thought Kahn was rightly decided. But the real motivation behind his question seems to be a callback to Justice Stevens and Stewart and this whole concept of whether there could be a law that purely discriminates against men. And you'll hear Ginsburg explain the difference between Kahn and this case in a way that makes a ton of sense to me. In Kahn, it was a matter of a $15 property tax exemption. Even if it was motivated by sex role stereotypes, it was unlikely to affect behavior. The social security benefits at issue in this case are more significant and therefore more likely to affect how couples organize work and home responsibilities. That's not too important, but in that case, did we not uh, hold that the state had enacted there uh, this special benefit for women that was not given to, that is for widows, not given to widowers, because, and this is the language of the opinion, it was reasonably designed to further a state policy of cushioning the financial impact of spousal loss on the sex for which that loss imposes a disproportionately heavy burden. Now, isn't there something of that same undertone in this case? The critical difference is that in Khan, that small tax break was unlikely to reinforce significantly well, or... Does it make much difference whether it's small or large on a constitutional basis? The question, the critical issue, is whether the distinction reinforces stereotype characterizations of the way women or men are, or whether such a line influences men and women's... I think a small, a small benefit might uh, be more invidious as a, 
sex stereotype, then a, a large benefit, wouldn't it? It is unlikely to in fact affect the decisions of men and women concerning the work that they do. A $15 annual tax benefit is not likely to have such an impact. But a social security differential, if it's a question of which one will be the dominant breadwinner, and if it's a question of thousands of dollars, that can sway decisions one way or another. $15 tax break is not likely to have that. But what you're saying effect. is that Congress uh, cannot uh, legislate on the basis of the assumption that in the great majority of cases, the man is the primary, is the dominant breadwinner Congress in can, our society. Congress can use a gender-neutral standard, but it can't simply assume that the men are the breadwinners and that the women are the dependents. What is the, what is the fact, statistically? The fact, statistically, as to this three-one de dependency test, I think it's quite clear that millions of American women could not meet such a test. It is not a small group of women involved here. Uh, the, the secretary has noted that the median average contribution of the wife to family income is 27%, where she works full-time, it's 38%, but even 27% is too high to qualify her under this three-to-one dependency test. So most women could not meet that test. Secretary's ultimate... Mr. Ginsburg, could I ask, uh, would you find objectionable uh, on equal protection or due process grounds a, uh, a, uh, an application of the support uh, test across the board to both men and women? If that's the line Congress chose to draw, there would be no problem with such a line. Uh, the question whether the legislature should do it... That's a different question. But you wouldn't, if Congress said... Uh, our overall aim is to provide for need, and uh, we're going to have a simple uh, rule uh, to serve that end, namely uh, a support test. And we're going to apply it to both men and women. You wouldn't find that objective. There would not be a constitutional infirmity uh, with that line. Thank you. So that exchange hearkened back to the tired concept of administrative convenience. The justice seemed to be asking, if most women are dependent on their husbands, wouldn't it be administratively convenient for the government to assume dependence? And since it's convenient, why can't Congress draw such a line? Of course, the assumption of administrative convenience is precisely what Ginsburg was trying to eradicate from American law as unconstitutional. But in any case, Ginsburg argued, that assumption would be wrong. The median woman contributes about 27% of the household earnings at this time, meaning that even the median woman couldn't qualify for these social security benefits upon the death of her husband if she was put to the same dependency test as Leon Goldfarb. And this answer invited the nearly inevitable colloquy about remedy. So the Supreme Court wants to know, okay, Ginsburg, say we agree with you, say we agree this law is unconstitutional. What are we supposed to do about it? It seems like you're asking us to make the law sex neutral, such that any sole surviving spouse, male or female, automatically would qualify for these benefits. But this is going to usher in millions of dollars of new claims to Social Security benefits from sole surviving husbands. And what's Congress's role in all of this? Can Congress make the law sex neutral in a different way by instituting an across-the-board dependency test, putting both men and women to the test of determining whether they should qualify for the benefits based on their contributions to household income? Or could Congress even just retract this benefit scheme altogether? And so Ginsburg will now make her points on this pragmatic issue. 
and she'll forcefully make the point that any associated costs of making this law sex-neutral are irrelevant to the constitutional question that is squarely before the Supreme Court. If Congress thinks that making this law constitutional is too expensive, then they can fix it. The Secretary's position here is that, although this is not clearly stated as justification for discrimination, it is cheaper to adhere to this gender criterion, but that is not necessarily true, nor is it material to this court's function. It should be underscored that the remedial issue in this case calls for tentative adjudication, not final resolution by this court. Authority and responsibility for definitive disposition remain with Congress. Striking the gender criterion leaves to the legislature the full range of gender-neutral options. Congress may extend benefits. It may retract them. It may apply across the board the half-support test or a less blunt limitation. This court's interim disposition should be guided by the preference Congress has consistently indicated when a gender line infects a benefit program. The reshaping has taken the same form on each occasion, removal of the gender-based differential by dropping the dependency test. That is the course unexceptionally recommended in every official report recently made regarding gender lines in Social Security, including the report so extensively quoted in the Secretary's brief. What judgment judgment, what kind of a judgment should the court enter? Just a declaration that... The court should affirm the judgment below. Which is just a declaration that the uh, distinction is unconstitutional on equal protection grounds. It should affirm the decision below, which held the one-way dependency test uh, unconstitutional. The consequence of that was that Leon Goldfarb qualified for benefits and is presently receiving them. An application of across-the-board dependency test, though open to Congress, is unlikely in view of the very drastic program change that approach would effect. It would remove from the beneficiary category not a small percentage of wives and widows, as as the Secretary asserted, but based on that 27% figure, clearly millions of wives and widows would fail that 3 to 1 dependency test. There, Ginsburg grappled with the financial implications of her case, but she also argued that at the end of the day, it didn't matter, because any considerations of cost are a question for Congress, not the Supreme Court, in deciding the constitutionality of the sex discriminatory law. All right, so Ginsburg will now wrap up her argument on a key theme. Whatever short-term benefit this law affords women, make no mistake. This Social Security benefit scheme reflects the lesser value of Hannah Goldfarb's contributions to the family unit. In any event, it is impossible to rationalize a gender criterion allocating benefits on the ground that it is cheaper to proceed that way if all that is required to uphold a statutory classification is the conclusion that it affects economies. Then any statutory scheme can be established and no arbitrarily excluded group can complain. Decades ago, now senior federal district court judge Bernita Shelton Matthews, in her days at the bar, as counsel to the National Woman's Party, explained like why a gender line, such as the one at bar, helps to keep women not on a pedestal, but in a cage. 
Such classification, she said, fortifies the assumption, harmful to women, that labor for pay, with attendant benefits for one's family, is primarily the prerogative of men. Apelli Goldfarb respectfully requests that the judgment below be affirmed, thereby establishing that under the equal protection principle, the woman worker's national social insurance is of no less value than is the social insurance of the working man. Okay, so the government was represented by Keith Jones, and his voice may sound a little familiar because he, he's the exact same lawyer who defended the mother's benefits law in Weinberger versus Weissenfeld. Because the government lost below, Jones went first. And Justices Stevens and Stewart admitted that they were a bit rusty on the facts of this case, and so Jones spent some time laying the groundwork in the facts. But then he teed up one of the major themes of this tape, anti-male bias. And here, you'll hear him question why Ginsburg is framing this case as discrimination against women. There is no legislative motive here to discriminate against women. Congress plainly designed the support test simply to deny benefits to non-needy widowers such as appellee. The difference in treatment is aimed at men, not at women. Since this is so, it may seem all the more puzzling why the appellee has worked so hard to characterize the support test as discriminating principally against women. So Jones is going to try to offer three reasons to explain why Ginsburg is, quote, working so hard to show why this law discriminates against women, which I'm going to clip in. So the first that he offers is that she is attempting to obscure the fact that what he seeks here is a double benefit. That is, <clears throat> it's a windfall in the nature of Social Security survivor's benefits on top of a civil service pension. So no surprise here, but right off the bat, Jones is chipping away at that double-dipper issue that Ginsburg was worried about with Leon Goldfarb. But if you think that reason is bad, the second reason is a real treat. I think the second reason that the appellee seeks to characterize this as a women's rights case is that the cause of women's rights is now a fashionable one and the appellee seeks to ride on its skirt tails. But it is the responsibility of this court to act on the basis of what reflects a proper accommodation of the respective roles of Congress and the courts, and not to act on the basis of what may be, the, what may be favored by the shifting tides of extrajudicial legal fashion. Yeah, so I'm not going to waste too much of your time analyzing that clip. Skirt tails? Really? But let's just take a moment to savor what Keith Jones would think of 2020 feminism. <sighs> okay, moving on. So here's his third reason. Appelli may be implicitly suggesting that the rights of women are constitutionally entitled to higher protection than the rights of men. As a lawyer and as a member of the class that would thereby be disadvantaged, I would urge this court to reject any such subtle suggestion. Women constitute a majority of the voting age population in this country. Unlike racial minorities, for example, women have the political power, if they choose to use it, to remedy any statutory inequality of which they perceive themselves to be the victims. So I do think it's fair for Jones to make one of those points. 
That's the notion that women are a majority, so they're totally different from the discrete insular minorities that have been accorded special constitutional status. But I also think he was attacking a straw man. I don't think it's a fair description of Ginsburg's argument to say that she thinks that women should be entitled to higher protection than men. Ginsburg isn't arguing that women should be entitled to special protection, quite the opposite. She's merely trying to show how a law that automatically gives women benefits but not men not only discriminates against the man, but is based on a legal assumption of female dependency. So I think we've heard enough from the advocates by now, and let's find out what the Supreme Court decided. The justices' notes from conference in this case are fascinating. So it's pretty predictable who initially voted to affirm. You had Brennan, Marshall, and White. No surprise. They wanted to strike down the sex discriminatory law. Chief Justice Berger and Justice Rehnquist wanted to reverse. But four justices were on the fence. Justices Blackman, Powell, Stewart, and Stephen all expressed that they felt that their hands were tied by prior precedent, but they didn't want to vote to affirm. At the top of Justice Blackman's notes from oral argument, it literally says, here we go again. Justice Powell said, if the slate were clean, I would certainly leave it to Congress. But Weinberger versus Weissenfeld in Frontiero certainly strongly support the decision in Ginsburg's favor. Justice Stewart wrote that the court had gone too far. He was not content with the present state of the law, yet he felt bound by the cases already decided. Justice Stevens was also on the fence, saying that he had substantial doubt about how he would vote. So you guessed it, Justice Brennan assigned himself the opinion, which was ultimately joined by Justices White, Marshall, and Powell. Justice Rehnquist wrote a dissent that Chief Justice Berger said should convince even the most ardent equal protectionist, and it did convince Justices Blackman and Stewart to vote with the dissent, which leaves one more vote, Justice Stevens. He ultimately voted to affirm, but he refused to join Justice Brennan's opinion. And his concurrence is really interesting. Justice Stevens agreed with Rehnquist in several respects. He agreed that the constitutional question, raised by Leon Goldfarb, required the court to focus on his claims for benefits, rather than his deceased wife's tax obligation. In other words, he agreed with Justice Rehnquist that this case was about Leon, not Hannah. He also agreed with Rehnquist that a classification favoring women is not invidious. He totally missed the boat on the meaning of benevolent sexism that Ginsburg has been pushing in so many of these cases. He also identified two potential justifications for distinguishing between men and women under law. Administrative convenience, what a backslide, and also citing Kahn this policy of cushioning the financial impact of spousal loss upon the sex for which that loss imposes a disproportionately heavy burden. Justice Stevens wrote that he didn't think that this case could be squared with Kahn, but that it was ultimately decided by Weinberger versus Weissenfeld. One silver lining in this concurrence is that he was ultimately persuaded by Ginsburg about the twin effects of anti-male bias, at least in this case. He wrote that he was persuaded that the discrimination against a group of males is merely an accidental byproduct of a traditional way of thinking about females. So this concurrence was not a good sign for Ginsburg, nor was Justice Stevens questioning at oral argument. She said that she was surprised at the good justice on this case. But on the other hand, she was thrilled with Justice Brennan's plurality. The plurality recognized how this law operated to discriminate against women, against the Hannah Goldfarbs of the world. 
on cost, Justice Brennan pointed out that the government paid $750 million a year to widows who were not dependent on their husbands, which was a loss much larger than if the government merely tested for dependency regardless of sex. And while I read this paraphrased conclusion, I want you to think how this would have read had Ginsburg never come on the scene, had she never been allowed to practice law, had she never waged this war to fight for a home for women in the Constitution. We held in Frontiero and again in Weissenfeld, and therefore hold again here, that assumptions based on archaic and overbroad generalizations about the status of women and the presumption of wives' dependency do not suffice to justify a gender-based discrimination in the distribution of employment-related benefits. That's a win. So I think there's another aspect of this plurality opinion that we need to unpack, the legacy of intermediate scrutiny. So even though the Beer case and this pension law case were argued on the same day, the justices decided the Beer case more quickly. And so this case, Califano, is only the second time that the justices are putting the new standard of intermediate scrutiny to the test. And just as a quick recap, throughout this podcast, we've talked about tiers of review. At the time that Ginsburg dreamed up this home for sex equality in the 5th and 14th Amendments, building on the legacy of prior scholars like Polly Murray, there were only two standards of review that applied when the court was considering a challenge to a discriminatory law under the 5th or 14th Amendments Equal Protection Clause and Due Process Clause. There was the really high level of skepticism through which a court would view a law that discriminates on the basis of race, national origin, and alienage. And Ginsburg wanted to add sex to that list. And then there was the really low standard of skepticism, rational basis review, that applied to all other types of classifications. And as TGT listeners, you know just how close Ginsburg got to getting strict scrutiny review. Throughout her first few cases, the justices seemed split. She got four votes for strict scrutiny in the first episode in Frontiero, but she never got that fifth vote. By Weinberger versus Weisenfeld, Ginsburg lowered her sights, and she asked the court for an intermediate standard that came to be strict scrutiny. In the beer case, near beer in the middle tier, remember, the court announced for the first time this middle tier of review that we now call intermediate scrutiny. To be specific, to withstand intermediate scrutiny, a challenged law must further an important government interest and must do so by means that are substantially related to that interest. And so it was a disappointment that Ginsburg did not get strict scrutiny review. This was a partial victory, but it wasn't a total victory. But as disappointing as it was, intermediate scrutiny has proven to have teeth. It's not a flimsy standard. In Mississippi University for Women v. Hogan, for example, the Supreme Court held that excluding men from a nursing school violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In another case called J.E.B. v. Alabama, the Supreme Court held that intentional discrimination against women in the use of peremptory strikes in selecting jurors also violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. But arguably, the high watermark of intermediate scrutiny took place when Justice Ginsburg was on the Supreme Court. In 1996, Justice Ginsburg authored an opinion that ruled that the Virginia Military Institute's exclusion of women violated the 14th Amendment. The decision described the intermediate scrutiny standard as requiring a genuine and exceedingly persuasive justification for sex-based discrimination. Even Justice Rehnquist voted with the majority, 
and he passed on Justice Scalia's unapologetic dissent, which expressed wistful longing for such old-fashioned concepts as manly honor that this Virginia Military Institute had championed. Following VMI, Justice Ginsburg herself observed that there is no practical difference between what has evolved in the courts and the Equal Rights Amendment. Ultimately, I mean, I think that tiers of scrutiny, like most legal doctrine, are elastic concepts. Just how demanding a standard intermediate scrutiny is, is still percolating through the courts. In some concrete ways, I think it does fall short of strict scrutiny. So here's one concrete example of a case where a law was able to clear the hurdle of intermediate scrutiny, but probably wouldn't have been able to clear strict scrutiny. So the case is Nguyen v. INS, and there the Supreme Court upheld a requirement that children born of American fathers and non-American mothers must provide evidence of paternity, but children born of American mothers married to non-American fathers automatically became citizens. And something interesting about Nguyen v. INS is that it highlights the inconsistency of intermediate scrutiny. Justice Kennedy wrote the opinion in that case, but just three years earlier, he had joined a concurrence saying that this same law, the same law that was at issue in Nguyen v. INS, would be unlikely to withstand intermediate scrutiny. There's also a fissure in the legal doctrine whereby courts have implemented a threshold formalistic requirement that men and women must be similarly situated for any heightened scrutiny standard to apply. And Nguyen v. INS is just one example of how this doctrine can play out in the courts. But according to one empirical study, a litigant bringing a constitutional challenge subject to strict scrutiny has a 73% chance of success, whereas a litigant bringing a constitutional challenge subject to intermediate scrutiny has a 47% chance of success, making the difference between the two seem significant. And it's also interesting in the study that it was more likely that a judge or panel would be influenced by their ideological persuasions where intermediate scrutiny applied, suggesting a lesser uniformity in the doctrine. And here's one example of how the meaning of intermediate scrutiny is still being played out in the courts. So in February 2019, a federal district court judge in Texas relied on VMI, Ginsburg's decision, to hold that excluding women from the military draft violates the Constitution. This obviously makes me think about Phyllis Schlafly because that was one of the most successful talking points in the Stop ERA movement. Speaking of the ERA, in talking through the legacy of intermediate scrutiny, we have to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment. So as TGT listeners, you know that at the very same time that Ginsburg was trying to make American society more equal by changing constitutional doctrine in the courts, a movement was raging in the political branches for an amendment to the Constitution. The Equal Rights Amendment would have said that equality of rights shall not be abridged or denied by the United States or any state on account of sex. And the ERA would have effectively raised the bar to strict scrutiny review, mooting Ginsburg's overall effort in the courts. And in the first few oral arguments that we listened to in this podcast, the ERA was looking like it was going to pass. The Frontier 04 frankly acknowledged that the fact that the Equal Rights Amendment had passed Congress and been submitted to the state legislatures for ratification showed that Congress itself had concluded that classifications based on sex were inherently invidious. And in a cruel twist of fate, the ERA was the very reason why Justice Stewart refused to vote with the Frontier 04 and give us a five-member majority in strict scrutiny review. Sometime around 1973, the amendment started to look less likely and the justices' support was also retreating. 
perhaps taking the pulse of the country in the popularity of Schlafly and the Stop the ERA movement, the justices themselves became more hesitant to fully raise the bar. And we know how this ended. The Equal Rights Amendment failed to gain ratification in three-quarters of the states and was never signed into law, becoming one of only six amendment proposals in our country's history to have passed Congress but failed ratification in the states. So in thinking about the legacy of intermediate scrutiny review, in thinking about the failed Equal Rights Amendment, where does that leave us? Do we still need an Equal Rights Amendment? Here's what I think. So there is a relatively narrow universe of cases already decided that would likely come out the other way. Edge cases like Nguyen versus INS where intermediate scrutiny fell short. But strict scrutiny has some features that could come into play to change areas of law like pregnancy discrimination and equal pay. Particularly because of that feature of legal doctrine that courts have implemented this formalistic requirement that men and women must be similarly situated for any heightened scrutiny standard to apply and the court's unwillingness to recognize discrimination claims based on a disparate impact theory. If any of you listened to the Pregnancy is Different episode, which I think I realize now that title might be a bit confusing, if you listen to the episode, you'll, you'll hear that it was that the justices treated pregnancy differently from other types of medical conditions, leading to such decisions as Godoldig versus Aalo. The court described the exclusion of pregnancy from a publicly funded medical benefit scheme not as sex discrimination, but as discrimination between pregnant and non-pregnant persons. But I think even beyond the doctrinal significance of the Equal Rights Amendment, the ERA would have the important feature of permanence. If passed, the ERA would enact a uniform and permanent theory of sex equality. Intermediate scrutiny is a judge-made doctrine. The ERA would be an amendment to the Constitution that cannot be taken away. I don't think that intermediate scrutiny is under any immediate threat, but I don't know if you guys have heard, but the very meaning of stare decisis and the meaning of precedent is a hot topic in the Supreme Court right now. And lower courts are being flooded by this administration with young judges vetted by the Federal Society who are interested in original meaning, and we all know that the 14th Amendment was not enacted with sex discrimination in mind. Which brings me to the point that rings most true to me. Sex equality deserves a home in the Constitution, a document that was written by men for men. As Ginsburg has explicitly recognized in these oral arguments, the 14th Amendment was enacted to eliminate invidious racial discrimination, and it never has been a perfect fit for sex equality. Situating sex equality in the 14th and 5th Amendments forces these cases to draw comparisons between racial discrimination and sex discrimination. Kathleen Sullivan said it powerfully, in her important article, Constitutionalizing Sex Equality. She wrote that even if, as Justice Brennan recognized in Frontiero, the pedestal on which women have been placed can become a cage, no one ever confused a pedestal with an auction block upon which human beings were bought and sold as chattel. And there's one important scholar that I wanted to mention who's done a ton of influential work on this topic, on the relationship between sex discrimination and race discrimination as a matter of legal doctrine that's been in the backdrop of so many of these cases. And that scholar is Serena Mayeri, who's a professor at UPenn Law. TGT listeners should definitely check out Mayeri's book. It's called Reasoning from Race, Feminism, Law, and the Civil Rights Revolution. In that book, Mary explained how feminists borrowed rhetoric and legal arguments from the civil rights movement, beginning with Polly Murray's Jane Crow. 
and she explores the rich and complicated relationship between race equality and sex equality in feminist legal thought and advocacy, and the development and consequences of this feminist strategy that we've been studying. The book reveals how incomplete my project is, how incomplete the Ginsburg tapes is, however verbose I have been. As to the race-sex analogy upon which so much of this 14th Amendment litigation project was built, Mary wrote in that book in 2011 that the race-sex analogy, when embraced by law, often became one-dimensional and abstract, reducing the meaning of sex and race discrimination to the lowest common denominator. She also wrote that the conservative ascendancy in the 1980s made race equality law a less appealing template and intensified competition between women and minorities. Analogies to race that once seemed full of promise became crabbed, co-optable, and constraining. By the early 1980s, race parallels had become a means of limiting change. To many feminists, then and since, race-sex analogies evoked white privilege and formal equality rather than interracial feminism and substantive justice. But this is only part of the story, Mary wrote. At the same time, the goals of feminists and civil rights advocates have never been so closely aligned. Conservative mobilization actually strengthened the bonds between feminists and civil rights advocates. The anti-abortion movement helped foster an alliance between abortion rights proponents and advocates for poor and minority women. Mary also wrote, that even the triumph of conservatism in the 1980 elections could not reverse the feminist gains in the 1970s. In small but unprecedented numbers, women had joined the ranks of the judiciary and the academy. Even the ERA's demise, the signal failure of feminism during this period, had a silver lining. Freeing feminists from the straitjacket that had constrained creative constitutional arguments during the ratification debates. And in time, the strides feminists made through legislation, administrative interpretation, and litigation in the 1970s loomed larger than the failure of the ERA. And so, and this is me talking now, even though the gains of the 1970s court cases that we've been following may have eclipsed the failure of the ERA as a matter of doctrine, you as TGT listeners are as qualified as anyone to know how valuable it would be to have an independent and permanent home for sex equality in the Constitution. Only the 19th Amendment, the less than 100-year-old amendment granting women the right to vote, is explicitly written for women. As Kathleen Sullivan wrote, the U.S. Constitution is the only major written constitution that includes a Bill of Rights but lacks a provision explicitly declaring the equality of the sexes. And as Ginsburg has said, I would like my granddaughters, when they pick up the Constitution, to see that notion that women and men are persons of equal stature, I'd like them to see that as a basic principle in our society. And so where are we now with the Equal Rights Amendment? There's definitely been a revival in discussions around the amendment in recent years. The Nevada legislature approved the amendment in 2017, and Illinois in 2018. Virginia is currently poised to become the 38th state, the magic number needed to get to the three-quarters approval to sign the amendment into law. But before the Equal Rights Amendment is passed, we're going to be forced to confront some totally unanswered questions about the Constitution. The first is probably already on your mind. It's the notion of the shot clock. So, as written in law right now, the ultimate deadline for passing the ERA was June 30th, 1982, or about eight years before I was born. But there's a question about whether Congress could change this deadline retroactively. 
And this strategy about moving the shot clock is grounded in a relatively obscure amendment, the 27th Amendment, which prevents Congress from voting to give itself a pay raise. The amendment was proposed in 1789 as part of the original Bill of Rights, but it didn't pass until 1992 after a relatively minor scandal involving check-cashing privileges for congressmen served as a catalyst for a strategy for reviving the amendment. A strategy that originated, kind of reminiscent of the Craig versus Boren beer case, with a University of Texas sophomore's term paper. Unlike the ERA, that amendment had no time limit, so there are some unanswered constitutional questions about whether Article 5 would allow the extension of a shot clock. And then there's another hurdle, the rescissions. We've talked about this on earlier podcasts, but four states that previously ratified the amendment subsequently rescinded their ratifications, and a fifth state's ratification included a provision saying that if the amendment wasn't approved by 1978, its ratification would be revoked. And those five are counted in the 38 total needed to get to the three quarters. So whether the states are allowed to rescind previous ratifications is a totally untested question. So that's where we're at today. Califano was announced the day after the ERA ratification was defeated in North Carolina. Ginsburg wrote to a long-term member of the Solicitor General's office, Lawrence Wallace, that the judgment in Goldfarb helped cushion the sad news. All right, y'all, that's a wrap. Thank you, as always, for listening to this episode of The Ginsburg Tapes. Before I go, I want to recommend a new podcast that will probably be interesting to a lot of TGT listeners. It's called Ordinary Equality, and it's going to be hosted by Kate Kelly, and it's a whole podcast about the Equal Rights Amendment. It's going to be a deep dive into the history of the amendment, provide a ton more context on where we are today. I'd love to thank my good friend, Melissa Shube, for providing feedback on an early draft of this episode. I also want to congratulate Melissa for starting her new job recently at the Lawyering Project. Lawyering Project is a relatively new organization that aims to improve access to reproductive health care in the United States through litigation that advances an intersectional framework. Thank you, TGT listeners, for listening. I'll be back in February with Ginsburg's final tape.